one of the people who was talking to me said, you know, me here, it's very simple. If you're having trouble deciding between the two, you know, just, just take the cocktail party test. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary. Kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Mihir Desai, professor of finance at Harvard Business School and a professor of law at Harvard Law School. His primary areas of research are international finance, corporate finance, and tax policy. Mihir has published numerous books, articles, and papers, as well as testified multiple times before Congress. Those who have been fortunate to follow Mihir's work know that he is a deep thinker, world-class scholar, and award-winning teacher, as well as a wonderful writer, featured in many leading publications. In this conversation with Mihir, among other things, we cover the cocktail party test, how the principal agent framework might help clear up the muddle of life, explore the dangers of optionality, get his views on why the pursuit of alpha is the most important life lesson from finance, and the reasons why the income inequality debate is deeply misunderstood. You were at HBS first as a student and now a professor in finance and law. What attracted you to finance and academia? Yeah, well, it was a little bit of a strange path. When I, when I came out of college, I kind of stumbled into finance and I worked as a financial analyst at an investment bank, but I had really just stumbled into it and I really enjoyed it. After that, I kind of stumbled uh, into business school because uh, that was what a lot of people were doing. And I wasn't really necessarily making conscious choices about what I wanted to do. And I guess in business school, I started to decide that I should stop stumbling around and make some conscious choices. And, um, you know, two things happened at business school. One is, well, I had a really great experience, but two important things happened, which is one is I took a PhD seminar with Amartya Sen, who at the time had not yet won the Nobel Prize and was teaching a graduate seminar on foundations of social choice theory. And I just thought it was amazing. And I thought economics gave me a way to think about the world, which I thought was really important and was something that I was missing. And then the second thing that happened is I was trying to think about careers. And uh, I had this uh, kind of epiphany, which is uh, I had spent time on Wall Street. I had spent the summer working in consulting. And then I was trying to decide between the two. And I went back for one of these cell days. And one of the people who was talking to me said, you know, me here, it's very simple. If you're having trouble deciding between the two, you know, just just take the cocktail party test. And I said, OK, I'll, I'll bite. What's the cocktail party test? And he said, well, you know, you get to go to a cocktail party and you get to introduce yourself. and You get to say, hi, my name is me here. I'm a banker. Or you get to say, hi, my name is me here. I'm a consultant. You know, which do you like better? And uh, I just realized I didn't like the choices. So I decided to go to India and uh, take some time to get to know the country that I was born in, but not that familiar with. And then I started my PhD and I kind of just decided I would keep doing it until it didn't work and it kept working and, you know, kind of made a bunch of two year decisions. And, you know, 20 plus years later, 
here I sit. Academia just turned out to be the most rewarding thing uh, that I could find to do, and it continues to be so. That's um, that's a beautiful story. You've clearly spent a lot of time at at Harvard as a student and uh, and then as a professor. Why why has that institution resonated so deeply with you? Gosh, you know, I think um, I've spent some time at other institutions, uh, but I have come to really love uh, that institution uh, broadly, and I think it's uh, for several reasons. You know, one, I think the intellectual environment is just fantastic. As an economist, Cambridge is a hotbed of economics research with the National Bureau of Economic Research, and that was extremely important to me as I was developing my research career, and the colleagues uh, are fantastic. You know, second, I think the caliber of the students which is obviously of first order importance to me, has also been just, you know, fantastic, both at the business school. I also teach some undergrads and now increasingly teach at the law school. I just find the intellectual inputs and the, the people who come in to be just an incredible source of excitement and, you know, stimulation. And then finally, I think, you know, the pedagogy has well, is well suited to me, you know, which is I've enjoyed the case method both from a research perspective and from a pedagogic perspective. So I think, you know, for all those reasons, you know, research, teaching and pedagogy, it's just been a really, really well-suited place uh, for who I am. What have you learned from your research and teaching experiences? Well, I mean, um, you know, lots of different things. I think, you know, in terms of the research, uh, there are many different um, ideas that we've tried to develop in our research. And they span lots of different topics in public economics and corporate finance. And similarly in teaching, you know, increasingly I realize that if I need to understand something deeply, the only way to understand something for me is to write something about it or to teach it. <laughs> you know, meaning <laughs> for me, you know, that's the only way to master a topic. So there's lots of different things I've learned in research and, and in teaching. Perhaps the most important one is, you know, that to really deeply understand something, I find that I have to, I have to write about it or I have to teach it in order to feel comfortable with a set of ideas. But then there's, you know, lots of lessons from teaching students and lots of lessons from research as well. Has it changed you as a person? Oh, sure. I mean, I think everything changes us as people. So I mean, I think that's one of the great myths, you know, that people who are 25 or 30 years old think, which is they think they're going to undertake a career path and that will just build on who they are and the answer is that's obviously wrong it'll change who you are and one of the reasons i went into academia is because i thought it would change me in the ways i would want to be changed by that i mean um, it would mean that ideas would become more and more important to me that uh, relationships with students would become more and more important to me that the world of ideas would just be the one i would inhabit and that's changed me for sure. It's made me value those things more. It's made me better at those things. And so, yeah, absolutely. It's changed me. And I think all our choices change us. And, and I think that's the, you know, the consciousness of those changes is what, what led me to make the choices I, I actually made. If you'd sort of distill it, in what ways would you say that your research and teaching experience has altered your thought process or decision-making process? Well, I think, you know, research really, from my perspective, just really trains the mind. In meaning, aside from specific findings or areas that I'm interested in, it really trains the mind to be rigorous. And the combination of theory and empirics in economics is really important because theory puts structure on your thinking and kind of prevents sloppy thinking from happening. 
and empirics empirical work prevents you from becoming you know too abstract and has to mean that you're grounded in reality so i think the most important things from research are that combination of rigor in your thinking and real world relevance and an attachment to the way the world works so that's that's been the most important thing from research and from teaching it's about you know two things one it's about humility which is it's about understanding that students come into your classroom with all kinds of things going on in their lives and you don't know what they are and you don't know who is going to know what and you should be humble in that place because uh, they're just wonderful people who have a lot to bring to the classroom and then the second thing is just to realize that you know to really understand ideas deeply it's hard and so the more we can do as pedagogues to help people understand things in different ways the better off we are and so it's not about kind of the ways i want to explain things or the ways that matter to me it's about trying to find the best ways to explain things to other people and in that sense you know i think teaching is a great act of empathy when it's done well i'm not saying i always do it well but <laughs> you know i think it's it's taught me that fundamentally teaching is an act of empathy and and that's a that's a great act to be involved in and you know it's clearly something i wish i was more uh, was something i was better at but it, it's something you strive for all the time when you're teaching i really like that where you put it active empathy that's beautiful what mental model sort of important concept or principle have you discarded that you embraced early on in your career yeah that's a great question i mean i don't know if i agree with the premise so mental models are i think really helpful and i don't think about throwing them away um as much as i think about um adapting them so I don't know if I've really discarded any mental models. I think I've kind of come to adapt them mm-hmm. and I've come to kind of maybe change the degree to which I believe in them with utter confidence. And so even for example, uh, you know, just the fully optimizing rational agent of economics which I s- still hold to, um unlike a lot of other people, I I but I have amended it and I've kind of changed it, but I wouldn't discard it. So I don't know if I really believe the premise of the question honestly, which is I don't think about discarding mental models. I think about uh, adapting our beliefs. You know, maybe that's a a subtlety, but uh, I think there's a little bit too much of a uh, premium on on new things in reality. I feel quite good about the ideas that I've built my career on and I kind of want to adapt them on the margin. I don't think about throwing any of them away. That's great. on the topic helping people understand concepts we actually read your fabulous book wisdom of finance uh, that you published last year where your aim was to bridge the gap between humanities and finance what got you started yeah you know so it was really you know quite serendipitous frankly you know which is i was asked to give a talk to graduating students you know I had no idea what I was going to talk about and this was almost 3 years ago now and I thought I would talk about things going on in the capital markets and share buybacks and and I was told that it's not what I was supposed to be talking about that I was supposed to be talking about something involving wisdom because they were about to go graduate and so I stumbled on the title you know I knew I was supposed to be talking about wisdom and I know something about finance so I put those two words together having no idea what it meant but I quickly realized that a lot of the ideas in finance have analogs to the way you think about your life and that turned out to be a very powerful framing you know the students really appreciated it and then i decided to try to make it into a book which 
required not just that mapping, but required the fortification of the humanities to make that mapping more interesting, more complex, and um, the material of a book. And the goal ultimately became, well, it started out serendipitously, the, game, the goal ultimately became you know, demystifying finance and rehabilitating it. Uh, so demystification, because I think finance gets demonized, and that's largely out of ignorance. And so if we can make finance accessible to more people with stories, um, I think that's great. And then the second is, you know, I think there are chunks of finance that are broken, and the way to rehabilitate finance is not regulation or outrage, but it's more likely to be grounding the ideas and practice of finance in a moral context. And so part of the difficulty in finance is we get lost in spreadsheets and screens, and the goal of the book is to inject moral content into the ideas of finance so that when people who practice it think about those ideas, they think about their moral dimensions and the humanities are, are just great for doing that. So, so really the goal of the book is, is that to, to really try to demystify and, and rehabilitate finance. Tell us about your process of finding these characters and incorporating them in your writing. Yeah. So it was just an enormously fun book to write because as you are alluding to, you know, uh, every chapter in the book has a big idea from finance, but it's explicated not in the normal way of equations and graphs, but with stories from history or philosophy or literature or religion or, or popular culture or wherever. And, you know, to find those things, it was just this great experience of hunting around and partly hunting around in my past and my memory of things that had really resonated with me um, and having, you know, that kind of sense of, finance be spoken of in this kind of very unorthodox way. So for example, when I was writing about optionality and I was remembering, you know, Bartleby the Scrivener, which is this great novella by Herman Melville. I was remembering things I'd read by Saul Bellow and that kind of finds its way into the book. And in other times when I was trying to find those things, I would just be looking for historical examples that were really interesting. So in bankruptcy, I, I stumbled upon the story of Robert Morris, which I think I knew dimly, but I didn't realize how important it was. And that was just a process of, you know, going down 100 rat holes and then finding a gold mine of an example that manifested everything you wanted it to be. And so it was about the 12 months of the most enjoyable kind of reading and research I've ever done. I, I read more in those 12 months than I probably read in the last 20 years. Wow. In which concept or, I guess, big idea did you find most enjoyable writing about? Well, I think the, the topic that I thought was the riskiest and the hardest to do and the most enjoyable was the corporate governance stuff. So, you know, corporate governance is this, I just think this incredibly central idea in modern finance, which is how and why the separation of ownership and control makes modern capitalism so complicated, you know, which is a way of saying there are principles in the economy, shareholders, and then there are managers in the economy. And the, the relationship between the two is fraught and really hard to manage because I'm a principal, for example, by being a shareholder in Apple and Tim Cook is my agent, but you know, he doesn't always take my calls <laughs> and it's hard for me to manage to watch him and to monitor him. And that relationship is really complex. And the way I chose to explicate it in the book is, you know, quite unusual, which is I, I talk about what the principal agent problem is in modern capitalism and how finance addresses it, which is not just 
you know, me as a shareholder of Apple, but also, you know, the hedge fund who's a shareholder of Apple, who in turn has a principal who's a pension fund manager, who in turn is a agent of a pensioner. But that principal agent model also helps you think about your life. So that chapter takes a really odd turn from going to, from discussing modern capitalism to talking about the ways in which your life is a manifestation of the principal agent problem, where people struggle with transitioning from being agents, fulfilling other people's agendas to becoming principals, which is, you know, effectively writing your own story. And so it's a really weird chapter in that it goes all the way from the uh, shareholder revolt in Apple in 2013 about cash disgorgement, you know, all the way to kind of psychology and Freud and, and Mel Brooks. So that was the most fun chapter. And, the, and I think the riskiest chapter and the most, uh, yeah, and, and the most enjoyable to, to write. I think that's probably the chapter I enjoyed the most. And you, you really highlighted the principal agent framework as a very powerful lens or, or mental model to understand really three things. One, modern capitalism, two, finance, and and three, you say the model of life. And I really like to kind of dig deeper into this concept of the principal agent, especially how it relates to kind of the, the model of life. Explain your, your thinking here. Yeah, so the the model of life is a, um, you know, is a term that I kind of snuck into the chapter quite a bit, but it's also a, a term from a room with a view by Ian Forster, where he, you know, he uses the term muddle a lot. And it's meant to kind of just explain how when we find ourselves in situations where we don't actually know why we're pursuing what we pursue. And uh, sometimes we think we're pursuing that in the name of our own agenda, but we're actually fulfilling the expectations of society or, or our parents or people who we deem to be respectable. And the muddle is trying to figure that problem out. You know, in that novel, it happens with a young woman who's, who's caught in between different relationships and is trying to figure out whether she truly wants to do something or whether she's just following societal expectations. It shows up in a lot of settings where we aren't sure if we're doing something because we think we should be doing something or whether we you know, really want to be doing something. It shows up in all kinds of settings where our own motivations are unclear and whether we're doing something in service of someone else or we're, whether we're really doing something in service of ourselves. And I think that's the model, you know, that many of us struggle with, you know, throughout their whole lives, which is to try to learn how to develop one's own agenda and follow through in it and kind of block out the noise of people's expectations and societal expectations and, you know, things that happened to us when we were children and all kinds of crap that, you know, can, <laughs> can confuse us in the process. And I think that's the model. That's the model of life. And that's the, the principal agent framework doesn't help you, doesn't answer that. You know, it's not going to give you answers, but it's, it's going to help you think it through. And I think that's the most you know, valuable thing it can do. And is that a mental model you apply frequently in your daily life or day-to-day -day life? I do. I mean, I think it helps me at times when I get confused, right? So am I, and I tell a couple of personal stories in that chapter about things that happened with my mother. And I have a lot of freedom, frankly, as an academic to do what I want. But I often do try to ask myself the questions of whether I'm pursuing goals because they are esteemed by the people around me or whether they are really the goals I want to pursue. And that, I think, is a whole chunk of what adulthood is about. And then similarly, you know, with my children, how do I 
not make them my agents so they pursue what I want them to pursue, but how do I help them develop their own agendas and, and develop into being principles who can, you know, author their own fate as opposed to kind of fulfilling some notion of what I think they should do. And that's a, that's a lot of what parenting is about. It's a lot of what being a child is about. It's a lot of what about being a human is about, I think. Is there a character that you relate to more than the others in the book? God, that's a good question. I think, I don't know if there's one character that I relate to more than any others. I think, yeah, I don't know if there's specifically one person. I mean, I really find in this last chapter, uh, there's a character from O Pioneers whose name is Alexander Bergson. And she's like a wonderful character because she demonstrates and she lives a life filled with finance in all kinds of ways. You know, she does a LBO of her farm, she merges, she diversifies, and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't turn into a jerk, which is what happens to a lot of people <laughs> in fictitious accounts of finance. It happens to a lot of people in finance. And I think she's a real role model. So I'm not sure I relate to her, but I would love to aspire to be, you know, as generous and as uh, level-headed and as kind as she is. So she certainly is a heroine in my in, in, in the book that I wrote. We talk also a lot about leverage in the book and curious to hear your view on how one best applies leverage in life and if you distill the main considerations. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, leverage is this incredible idea in finance, which many people in finance love because it many fortunes have been built and broken on it. <laughs> and I and I think the reason people love leverage in finance is the same reason why leverage is a great idea to think about in your own life. So, you know, what is leverage in finance fundamentally about? It's about committing yourself to lenders through a very serious set of commitments, which is a way of saying, I'll borrow money from you, but if I violate covenants or if I don't pay you back, you get pretty significant decision rights over me. And that can mean bankruptcy, but that can mean a lot of different things. But in the process of doing those commitments and make those commitments, you're able to do things you would otherwise have no ability to do. So the magic of leverage is you get to live in a house you have no right to live in. You get to buy an education you have no right to buy. You get to control assets you have no right to control, but you only get that through commitments. The frame of leverage helps you, I think, in your life because much is the same is true in life, which is by making a series of commitments, you get to access experiences you would never have had, but it comes at a very serious cost, which is you constrain yourself through those commitments. So I think over the life cycle, for example, leverage is a useful way to think about it. And it's how we think about firms and using leverage. You know, when you're young startups, you don't use a lot of leverage because it's highly uncertain. You become more mature you start to lever up as a firm and then into decay, you want to delever because otherwise it will accelerate decline. And that same thing is true in life, you know, which is a lot of what we try to do as parents is introduce uh, commitments to our children that we want their first decade at least to be completely free of, you know, uh, constraints and commitments. And then we layer them on over time. And then as you become an adult, you commit yourself in different ways to different organizations and to different people and to your children. And that enables you to do things you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And then you know, I find myself and many people in my setting find themselves highly levered, you know, which is we, we've made a lot of commitments to people in our lives, to our children, to our careers, 
and to organizations we work for and to friends, it's great because you get things you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise, but you don't know if you're always living up to all those commitments. And that is kind of the really hard part. And when it works, it's like fantastic because you live up to all your commitments and you get all these experiences you wouldn't have had otherwise. And when all those commitments become unsustainable, it's pretty ugly. It's pretty nasty. And so, you know, navigating, you know, kind of like the persuasion problem, the idea of leverage doesn't tell you how to live your life. It just is a way of helping you think about the value of commitments and the danger of those commitments as well, kind of as you structure your life. And I think the mistake most people make is they're under-levered, just like the most the mistake most firms make is that they're under-levered, you know, which is we resist commitments and we don't realize how much we're giving up by, by resisting those commitments. That's fascinating. You mentioned about the year-long work you did uh, reading different books and trying to figure out the characters. Has that process, going through that process, altered your behavior or thought process in some way, personally? Yeah, yeah, I think it has. It's a good question. I mean, I think it's, you know, as an economist, you become pretty suspicious of stories and anecdotes because it's not real data. And I think that process reminded me of how important stories and narratives are for human beings. And it made me kind of maybe made me remember how much I enjoy those parts of life. And so it's made me think more about how people organize their mind by stories and narratives, as opposed to the way sometimes we assume they do. So it's made me appreciate those things, you know, much more than I ever did before. That's for sure. One thing. I think the second thing is it's, it's made me appreciate even more the creative arts, which I think I always had, but I think I've come to really understand again, how valuable those endeavors are. And so I think in both those ways, it's, it's changed me. Yeah. Continuing on one of the themes in, in your book, optionality, you last year published an article in the Harvard Crimson, which we found to be quite profound. It's titled The Trouble with Optionality. It's, it's really a wonderful article. Why did you feel the urge to write it? Well, you know, honestly, it was born of the most crass instincts, which is when I was you know, getting ready, the, the book was getting published, I was told I had to write these articles so that people would buy the book. And you know, that was the idea behind it. And frankly, it's totally not true. And, you know, it doesn't actually help you sell books. Um, other things can help you sell books, but that doesn't. But I've written a couple of articles which got published in different great places. And then that article wasn't getting published anywhere. And I finally, I was so frustrated about it. I sent it into the Crimson, which is the Harvard newspaper. And they were kind enough just to, you know, take it right away and, and put it into their commencement issue. And that turned out to be like the best publicity for the book, despite the fact that no one else would publish it. Um, so it was born out of crass instincts, but it, it tries to make a point that I, I make in the book as well, which is people in finance get obsessed with optionality and, you know, with good reason. So the, the, the idea of optionality is that you want more choices in your life. And so that's what makes financial options so attractive because you gain the ability to do something without the obligation to do it. And people in finance love that. And they love the idea of getting more optionality in their life. So they'll talk about going to a school for more optionality or getting a job with a prestigious firm for more optionality. And what I observe in that piece is that it gets 
it, it becomes quite a bad pathology, which is people get addicted to buying optionality. And the only thing they get good at is buying optionality. And it's addictive to kind of buy more and more safety nets. And the problem with that, of course, is the whole lesson in finance of optionality is the opposite, which is you buy options in order to undertake big risks and to take on big risks. And what ends up happening to the people who get obsessed with optionality is they just get obsessed with buying more insurance. And that's not the reason you buy insurance. You know, you buy insurance or you buy options in order to take big risks. And so it's this perversion that I find a lot of young people struggle with, which is they just get used to buying more and more optionality and then they never pursue the really big risks that all those options were meant to help you pursue. And that's a little bit of the tragedy of of, of optionality. I guess one goes into a rabbit hole and one never comes out of it. Well, that's right. And, you know, people wake up, you know, 50 years old and they realize they never pursued what they wanted to pursue. And that's a, <laughs> and that's, a, and that's, I don't mean to laugh about it. It's a real problem. But it's, I think what happens is we trick ourselves into thinking, well, if I buy a little bit more optionality, I'll be able to do more in the future. But people don't realize how addictive it is to keep doing that and how, you know, to go back to the theme we started with, the choices you make shape who you are. And if you spend 20 years buying options, you know, the only thing you're going to get good at is buying options. So, <laughs> and that becomes a problem because that's not really what um, options are, are meant to do. Options are meant to be uh, insurance to help you do the big risky thing you were meant to do. Speaking of which, where does one draw a line between healthy and unhealthy optionality? Yeah, that's a, you know, I think that's the really, that's a really deep and hard question. I think there is some virtue in, in buying optionality. I think that the thing that one has to realize is one has to take a look at oneself and understand how much insurance you really need and how much more optionality you need in your life. It's a way of saying most people who make these mistakes end up underestimating how many safety nets they already have, which is a way of saying, you know, you know, there are these kids I see in my office, like 26, 27 years old, who are as bright as can be. I have already, you know, gone to and emerged from the most elite institutions and the most elite companies, and they've convinced themselves they need more safety nets. And that's got to be wrong <laughs> because they're not taking a, a serious inventory what safety nets they have acquired. Most importantly, the privileges they were born with, the human capital they've uh, invested in, the relationships and family and loved ones who will be there no matter what happens to them. If you kind of think hard about all the safety nets you've already acquired, as opposed to fetishizing, you know, more safety nets, I think you'll realize that you don't need any more. And so I think the important thing to realize is you, you probably in some ways need less optionality than you think. The only reason to continue to buy optionality is it's not for more insurance, but it's only if you think you're going to learn something. So it's okay to invest in more education. Heck, I'm in that business and I believe in it greatly, but it's because it, it'll help you learn, not because of the optionality it'll cre create. It's okay to work at great firms, but primarily because you're going to learn something that will help you be a better person and be a better manager or entrepreneur or whatever you want to go do. It's not because of the insurance you acquire. So learning should be the dominant motivation as opposed to buying insurance so as to say the right intrinsic reasons and not 
financial or monetary reasons. Yeah, that's right. And and I think the mistake they make is they fool themselves, right? I mean, you know, it's the hardest thing is just to be truthful with yourself. Like you think you're doing something because of, you know, you think you're going into a job for the right reasons. In reality, you're flocking to the prestige of the company or you're listening to what your friends think is the cool thing to do, you know, or you're just being risk averse because you don't feel like you have what it takes to go do what you really want to go do. And it's, you know, the hardest thing is just to try to be honest with yourself and to kind of convince yourself that you do have those things. And that's, that's what enables you to kind of get out of this trap of buying more and more optionality. I think this, or these ideas are are really compelling. and, And like I said, quite profound, but if you would look at a distribution of the population, uh-huh. where where do you think these ideas might not be applied sufficiently? Oh, I see. Well, let me make sure I understand, Eric. When you say not applied sufficiently, meaning the problem is not buying enough insurance, or the problem is not, is that, is that what you mean? Implicitly, you're thinking of a certain segment of Yes. The, the distribution, right? You're talking about 95th percentile or yes. or higher. What about the maybe lower end of, of the distribution? Well, I think, well, first off, you're absolutely right. What I described in that article and in the book is, is a high class problem of the elites. I think it's an interesting problem, but it's not the universal problem. You know, the problems further down the distribution of income or wealth or ability are different problems. And they're largely about helping those people take risks and either societally or familiarly providing them with more safety nets so that they can undertake those big risks, right? And so that can happen in the context of families or friendships or in the context of the state. For those people, it's really fundamentally about providing them with enough resources to feel like they can take the risks of investing in more education or investing in themselves. And that's a fundamentally different set of problems. In some sense, you're absolutely right, Eric. It's, it's the opposite problem. It's, it's people who are not able, for a variety of reasons, to undertake the risky investments that, that will yield the really high returns that they deserve. Article culminates with the discussion of Alpha. Why is the pursuit of Alpha the most important life lesson from finance? Well, I think the, the pursuit of Alpha is this, uh, is this other idea in finance, which I think is a very interesting one, which is about the only way to create value is to generate returns in excess of one's cost of capital. It's it's really about living a or achieving a really superior outcome, well beyond expectations, well beyond the resources you were provided with. That is what it means to generate alpha. And in life, of course, that means living a truly exceptional life where well beyond what you were given, you deliver to the world, you know, much more than you were given. And it's a very uncertain path. In fact, for most people who are money managers, you never really know if you deliver alpha. It's kind of a something you spend your life trying to do. And it's the pursuit of those outsized returns, you know, given risk undertaken, that is the joy of finance. It's not knowing you, you you'll never know in some sense if you generate alpha. It is about the pursuit of it and about the joy of pursuing alpha that ultimately is, is the true reward. And I think that's something that, you know, maps to one's life as well, pretty easily. According to 2015 S&P study, 
57% population in US are considered financially literate. Across the world, that number is 33%. What can we do to address this gap? Yeah, I think this is a hugely important topic and one that I don't think receives the attention it deserves, which is if you think about what it means to be a functioning citizen or to be a functioning person, <laughs> you know, knowledge of finance is so critical. It's critical to the most important economic decisions you make, uh, how to invest in your education, when and how to save for your retirement. And people just don't have the basic frameworks to understand those things. And I think the answer has got to be twofold. One is the most obvious answer has got to be we've got to shift this to the K through 12, you know, domain, which is a way of saying that we've got to get to people younger and we've got to get them understanding finance earlier. And then the second thing is, you know, we in finance have got to take it upon ourselves to educate people better. And I think the problem in finance for, in many cases is people in finance use the complexity of finance to kind of shroud it in mystery and preserve power that way. And that's kind of terrible, right? So um, for for those of us in finance, the obligation is on us to talk about finance and to share the ideas of finance in the most simple ways we can. And and that's our responsibility. So I think societally, we have to move through K through 12. And individually, for those of us in finance, you know, we have to do more in our families and in our communities to, to talk about finance in a plain spoken way so that people don't get intimidated by it. Yeah, get people early and make them aware. And then uh, that hopefully helps as people are growing up to keep in touch with some pretty simple, maybe some critical or complex subjects. My one of my 10 year old daughters is convinced that she and I should write a child's version of the wisdom of finance. So if we ever do that, I'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. We would like to also know more about your course, Leading with Finance. How did it come about? Yeah, so, you know, I think I was um, I was deeply skeptical about MOOCs, you know, these massively online open courses. And HBS, which is the institution I belong to, has, a, has their own online platform. And I think in part to prove to myself or to understand the online medium better, I wanted to develop a course. Kind of per what I said before, I don't understand something unless I do it or write about it or you know teach it. So I wanted to see what you could do online and what you can't do online. And so we built this course called Leading with Finance, which has been just a spectacular experience. And it really tries to use the online setting in a distinctive way. So you know rather than do what a lot of MOOCs do, which is you know slap on slap on the web you know, 80 minutes of video of somebody lecturing and then expect people to watch it, you know, and then have watched 20 of them and then take an exam. I think that's a pretty poor use of the medium. And of course, the dirty little secret of those MOOCs is that, you know, 80,000 people sign up and 300 finish. So that's not the right model, I think. (laughs) And so what we do in the course is focus on the really big intuitions of finance and develop them using an online medium so that the longest video is probably four minutes long. It's punctuated with exercises and questions. There's social media throughout so that you're asking each other questions and answering questions for each other. We have cases with real life protagonists, two CFOs, a private equity person, a hedge fund person, and an analyst, so that it's really real ideas and, and in a real world setting. 
developed in a very intuitive way. So it gave me, it left me feeling, in some sense, I, I still am skeptical about online, meaning for a lot of K through 12 things, I think I'm skeptical. But for a lot of other settings, especially um, higher ed settings, I actually think it's a fantastic medium. And that course, I think, is for me been very rewarding in part because you know, the hardest thing in academia is it's hard to get leverage. But with leading with finance, you know, I can have a, I think, you know, two, 250 people just finished the course last week. And I, you know, I, it was all the upfront cost was huge for me in terms of developing the materials. But now more and more people, I get to try to impact more and more people without, you know, additional effort, which is really spectacular from my side. And so why um, are you skeptical of um, its application in K through 12? Yeah, I think, (laughs) you know, I think two things. One is I think usually it's undertaken in a cost-saving mode as opposed to a pedagogic motivation, which is fine, except for the fact that it's dressed up as being pedagogically superior when it's really just cost-saving. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is, you know, my experience in the classroom is that so much of it is about the mano-to-mano battle (laughs) to explain things to students. (laughs) And online is just really hard for that. And so I'm still a huge believer in that. And I guess finally, I think the problem with online in the K through 12 setting is it's going to exacerbate the fundamental inequalities to access learning that I think are already present. And I think that's really unfortunate. So I think in the higher ed setting and in the professional setting, it's different because people have very complex lives. They can't dedicate themselves to spending dedicated amounts of time for all kinds of reasons to do things. They have more well-developed intellectual instincts already. And I think online can be great in those settings. I just don't know if I buy it as much in the K through 12 setting. Yeah, it's hard to say, especially hard to predict how the kids are growing up will react to the mode of giving them this knowledge online. Yeah. I mean, as you, as you probably know, I, I remember one of the most, uh, when I think about my own kids, one of the best articles I read was, there was an article in the Times several years ago about how, you know, the leading Silicon Valley executives were sending themselves, sending their kids to schools where technology didn't show up until, you know, like ninth grade, the Waldorf school and other schools. And I thought to myself, that's a sign. <laughs> um, you know, that tells you something when the technological elite are delaying introduction of technology to their children in classrooms. And that's something that, you know, conforms to my own instincts about how we should think about technology in our children. How has the course evolved over time? Well, I mean, it, it evolved primarily as we kind of put it together um, and we learned more about how and what worked for students. I think it started, you know, in a more traditional manner of kind of just developing the lectures and the videos of me lecturing in these snippets. And then what became much more valuable was adding all these protagonists who developed their own case studies. And we figured out how to let people do those case studies remotely. And then finally, I think one of the things I'm even most proud of is, is, is those interactive exercises all along the way really are drawn from real world data and they're challenging. They're not Mickey Mousey. One of the problems with online stuff is it's all, you know, Bob had a store and, <laughs> you know, you have to borrow some money and how, you know, it just all feels very Mickey Mousey. But if instead you can say, you know, here are three retailers, you know, Walmart, Best Buy and, you know, Bed Bath and Beyond, and here's how they're trading and their multiples. Why would their multiples look different? 
in a discussion of kind of what multiples mean, that's a that's a richer way of talking about finance than you know, company X looks like this and company Y looks like that. It's it's really been great to kind of really amplify a lot of learning in that course with real world examples. Let's shift a little bit, talk about kind of the intellectual, theoretical domain of finance. What do you see as current frontiers in this domain? Yeah, so I think, well, let me tell you what I think is perhaps not as uh, fruitful, and maybe then I'll tell you what I think is fruitful. And this, I don't mean to answer your question negatively, because uh, <laughs> it's a valuable question, but you know, there's an enormous amount of attention today on behavioral finance and on departures from optimizing agents and how that can influence market equilibrium. And I think there's a lot of excitement and interest in that, you know, ranging from, you know, trading strategies that can make money in a, in a departure from efficient markets to nudging you to saving more, all kinds of things. I find that field pretty dramatically overblown. And I don't find it nearly as exciting as almost all my colleagues do. So I'm a complete kind of departure from that, which is, I think the, the promise of that field has been overblown, and I think the social remedies that it recommends are kind of overblown, and so I'm not a huge fan of that. In that sense, I'm a little bit of a cranky old man and a traditionalist, which is, I think, the really interesting things going on and the interesting frame on the world that finance scholarship provides is about incentives and information. And as one example, in that contest, you know, I think if you think about the financial crisis, which we're now 10 years upon, 10-year anniversaries now, happening. You know, one way to understand that is is as a fluky outcome of some event that nobody could have foreseen and, you know, non non rational agents were doing crazy things and that's the usual behavioral prescription. And I think that's just, you know, dead wrong. I mean I think the way to understand that moment and that set of events is by a deeper application of incentives and information, which is was an entirely screwed up set of incentives that drove people to do rational things that the system was uh, leading them to do. So that's just a way of saying two things. One, I think the primary fork in the road for the discipline today is between hewing more closely to a rational framework and abandoning it for these behavioral insights. And I'm, I find myself increasingly a a cranky old man and, and believing in the traditional frameworks in part because I don't think the behavioral stuff adds up. And it kind of forsakes the idea of equilibrium, which I think is the, one of the most important ideas in finance and economics. So I find work that thinks really hard about incentives and information in the financial system in particular to be really rewarding. And in banks and understanding the financial sector, its relationship to the macroeconomy to be really, really interesting. And then second, I think thinking about incentives at the corporate level to invest, to try to understand what the incentive problems are there, I think, to be really deep and interesting. Anyway, I don't want to be negative about it, but I do think I'm a I'm an outlier, which I think is is just important to say, which I think, you know, what most people think is sexy and interesting is not what I think is sexy and interesting. But yeah, that's the stuff I do think is interesting is, is more kind of the bread and butter of finance, which is thinking about information and incentives in markets. In terms of corporate governance, what are your thoughts on that field? Well, I think... And I think it continues to be kind of a, an area of just incredible importance. So if you think about today and you think about, you know, two dimensions of the problem, the first dimension is 
just think about the capital allocation problem and the enormous bets that are being made in capital allocation today. So post-tax reform, we have trillions of dollars of cash that have been freed up and people making very large decisions on buybacks in particular, which may be highly problematic and may be motivated by the worst of incentives. And so I think understanding that and understanding why people are making the decisions they're making and, and providing them with better frameworks to make those decisions has enormous social value. And then, of course, I think the corporate governance problem in chunks of the world is, is not about the problem of managers doing bad things, but it's about the problem of insiders and majority shareholders taking money away from minority shareholders. And that problem, too, which we see in large chunks of the world, I think continues to be a first order problem. So, you know, both those problems to me are, I think, the most important problems in capitalism today. Understanding how to control managers better and understanding how to control insiders and large shareholders versus minority shareholders. Those are kind of the most interesting questions in my mind in, in finance. How do you see the future of finance evolving? Well, I think in terms of the practice of finance, it's hard to understate I'm sorry, it's hard to overstate the importance of financial technologies and their advent and their proliferation in the next two decades, which is just a way of saying we will see very dramatic changes in the financial sector because of blockchain. I'm not a, personally, I'm not a believer in, in uh, cryptocurrencies and I never have been, but blockchain is real. And I think if it gets adopted well, it can unseat a lot of large incumbents and can make the financial system a lot more uh, democratic and a lot more efficient. And in particular, I think if it's used well, and if the big banks don't monopolize it, it could end up becoming a real, a real force for good. So I'm a huge fan of those technologies, and I'm a huge fan of using those technologies to uh, democratize power. And I, I think that will happen, assuming larger institutions don't monopolize it. I think that's the most important thing that will happen in the next 20 to 30 years. And I'm hopeful that it will actually happen as, you know, as fast as possible. There's a danger that it will end up entrenching powerful interests today who will monopolize it and kind of retard its growth. But I'm, I'm quite hopeful that it will actually unseat them. Let's shift gears again slightly. I want to talk about maybe some more personal stuff. What motivates you? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as I alluded to before, ideas are the dominant thing that motivate me. Kind of understanding ideas and then developing my own ideas and then proliferating the ideas that I believe in. That's professionally the most important thing to me. And personally, you know, my children and my family are the most important thing to me. But uh, I think professionally, it's about developing ideas and helping people understand the world. And I think in particular today, you know, finance is highly contested, capitalism is highly contested, and we're undertaking a set of very stupid decisions because people don't understand how powerful those things are. And so I think developing ideas and making people understand that I think is a really important part of what I want to try to do. And then finally, there's a pedagogic aspect to who I am, which is I love simplifying and explaining things to people. And I think that continues to motivate me a great deal. And how do you allocate your time? Well, uh, not as efficiently as I'd like. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I, I, you know, professionally, I have a great deal of latitude, uh, which is fantastic. I probably spend about a third of my time teaching and I spend about, you know, 50% plus on writing and then whatever's left 
you know, some combination of things for myself or administrative things. And, you know, I think the, the good fortune I have is that I can allocate my time with a great deal of freedom. I only wish I was doing it a little bit more rigorously and I was allocating, you know, more time on the margin to writing and developing ideas and, and less time on the margin to social media and the stupidities that can distract me from doing really good work. <laughs> um, and that, that's the kind of main thing I struggle with because I think writing is hard and um, writing a book is hard and it just takes a lot of dedication. And I think it tends to just, the hard, the struggle for me is to try to discipline myself enough to sit down and just do the hard work of writing. And this might be a slight curveball. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Um, well, you know, that's a great question. And I think, I mean, I'll give you one that I think is very important. I, I, and I think is, you know, I think controversial, but I think is, I mean, by definition, you're asking me about what I, what I believe in is that is controversial. You know, I think the entire income inequality debate is deeply, deeply misunderstood. And I think first the underlying aggregate pattern is misunderstood, which is of course that in the last three decades or four decades, income inequality has dramatically decreased, um, measured on a global scale. And it's only the, the artificial boundaries of nation states, which makes income inequality look like it's gone up. And in fact, the story of the last four decades has been, you know, the lifting up of a billion, maybe 2 billion people out of poverty. And we should be enormously proud of that, despite, you know, all the rhetoric one hears. Second thing about income inequality that's deeply misunderstood is, I don't think it's risen nearly as much as people think. And I think there's a really interesting debate that should be understand more broadly within economics about the data and about how, in fact, many of the claims about the rise in income inequality are not nearly as great as people think. And in fact, nothing really has happened to income inequality in the last three decades or two decades. The degree to which it really ramped up was in the 80s and maybe early 90s. And it has basically been flat since then. Not even clear that it rose as much as people think it rose during that time, because a lot of that is an artifact of tax reforms and other reporting things. Anyway, so those are all beliefs that I think are controversial. I'm quite confident in them, and I think they're important because the income inequality debate and people's anger about it has fueled so many stupid decisions today. <laughs> and it really worries me that, that people are obsessed with something that A, may not be true, and B, isn't really what we should be obsessed with. You know, we, should be, we should be worrying about stagnant wages, and we should be worried about growth. And instead, we're, we're entering into kind of a circular firing squad of policies that are oriented towards trying to fix a problem that may not nearly exist as much as has been made out to be. What's the biggest trade-off in your professional existence? Well, I mean, you know, clearly, I'm like everyone else, which is that the biggest trade-off is between personal between personal considerations and professional ones. So, you know, on the margin, if I can spend time with my daughters or I can spend time working, that's like the most important, you know, trade-off there is. You know, professionally, I think the important trade-offs are about the degree to which I invest in producing books and the degree to which I invest in uh, producing things that are more scholarly. And recently I've been doing the book thing and I wonder about that a lot. And I, I think it's the right decision, but it is different than doing the traditional thing that economists do. So I think that's the most important trade-off right now. What are you currently reading and what's, what's sort of capturing your interest? 
right now? Um, gosh, lots of different things. Um, I guess the most immediate thing is, I think uh, there's an essay that I think is really spectacular called It Can Happen Here by uh, Cass Sunstein in the New York Review of Books, which is about the rise of Nazism and the rise of totalitarianism. And it's a really provocative essay in the New York Review of Books, and I think it's just great. So that's an essay that I've been captivated by recently. And then in terms of you know books and other kinds of things, I guess the most recent thing that I've read that has really captivated me in terms of nonfiction is a, is a book about millennials called Kids These Days, uh, which I think is really, really great. And it's like the first full-throated defense of millennials. And I think it's really fantastic. Uh, and it opened up my eyes to something that I hadn't really thought hard about. And then in terms of... Fiction, I suppose, the thing that I've read most recently that has really been captivating is, it was a little while ago, but I, I still remember it so well, is this very short novella by an Indian author that was translated into English called Gachar Gochar. It's G-H-A-C-H-A-A-R and Gochar, G-H-O-C-H-A-R. And it's like a, it's a book that'll take you like, you know, three hours to read, mm-hmm. but it's a great story about new wealth and greed and how corrupting it can be. So there's a, a fiction, a non-fiction, and an essay for you. What projects are you currently working on? Well, I'm taking that online course, and I'm trying to make it into a book, which is going to be called How Finance Works, which I think is going to be really fun, and that should be out in March or April. And then I'm working on a new book, which is nothing really like Wisdom of Finance, but it's about the rise of investors and how they came to dominate the economy. And so I think that will be really fun. And, um, you know, for the next two years, I can make a huge amount of progress on both those things. I'll be, I'll be really, really happy. How can listeners find out more about your work? Sure. So, well, uh, my website is www.mihirthesai.org. And I'm on Twitter at A, as well as LinkedIn. And I always love to hear from people who want to engage in the work. And I guess the most fun recent thing is two colleagues and I, Yen Ni Moon and, and Felix Overholzer G, have started a podcast which is called After Hours. I think it's called HBS After Hours, and it's available on iTunes, and it's a really, been a really, really fun experience for us. So that's another way to stay in touch with what I'm, what I'm up to. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.